These are the times that try men's souls, wrote Thomas Paine in early 1776. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country, but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. These were just a few of the fiery words contained in Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, in the opening days of 1776 in America. Words that expressed the feelings of many colonists who were chafing under the yoke of British rule in those early years. The fire that had inspired Thomas Paine to write these spirited words in his 1776 pamphlet was still present, but the summer soldiers and sunshine patriots were still sitting on the fence waiting to follow a winner, or they had already thrown in their lot with the British, reasoning that being a British subject was a far kinder fate than being a dead rebel. The odds stood heavily against the rebelling colonists when you take into account the size, strength, and experience of the British naval and land-based forces. At that time, the British juggernaut was the most dangerous and lethal military force in the world. Think of them as cannon-wielding goliaths pitted against the American patriots, which, for the sake of comparison, will describe here as one-armed, rock-throwing country boy Davids. Once you get beyond that assessment, you can look at these remaining factors. 1. Half of the colonists in North America were loyalists, many times the guy just down the road, supporting the British, and having no qualms about burning down your house, or at the very least, turning you in as a rebel for defying the King of England, especially if they thought they could get their hands on your property, and often you weren't really sure who you could trust. Two, the British were using their Indian allies as well as loyalists to harass and attack colonists in outlying areas, killing settlers who refused to become British subjects, and burning and looting their homes forcing Washington to fight on multiple fronts when he could spare the troops, and instilling fear and unrest throughout the more remote areas of the colonies. Three, the American Congress, forced to pick up and move from city to city, was very nearly broke, and many in Congress were involved in a silent coup against Washington's leadership, frustrating him to no end. Four, the Continental Army was suffering mightily from battle losses and desertion, to a greater degree every year, and as the war grew longer, many men had to go home to work their farms and make sure the families they had left behind were safe. And five, Germany had thrown their lot in with the British, and the Hessian troops were well-experienced and well-armed. So, many challenges for Washington and the Patriot cause. Outside of the turmoil, France, with ships and fighting men, and scores of grudges to settle with the British, we're watching these one-sided odds we just discussed very closely. If the Americans could pull off a major win, France might just help them out and help to tip the scales. In those days, the weapons were smooth-bore flintlocks, bayonets, swords, and cannon. Words like accuracy and reliability were not even in use, and most deaths were begun with a musket ball and ended with a bayonet or sword. Armies in this war consisted of maybe 3,000 men. Less than 100 years later, in America, armies would grow to 100,000 men or more. For example, 200,000 men were to meet and fight at Gettysburg in 1863. Incredible numbers that only increased the sadness and futility of that conflict and others like it. The American Revolution was our first civil war in America. 
and the war that defined us as a nation of free people. It meant something then, and still means something today. It was fought by individuals whose incredible sacrifice in the face of overwhelming odds secured the existence of America. They were of every color and class, and they came from both the towns and the frontier to fight. They paid the price for the freedom we enjoy today. The names of men like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Thomas Paine are known to all who study history. But the names of the thousands of individuals who believed in the cause of liberty and made the choice to stand up for it have largely been lost to history. Here at 1001 Heroes, part of our mission is to honor courage and sacrifice. No surprise to all of you who listen to our shows. The stories that follow remember these extraordinary people and their sacrifices. We'll start with Robert Morris, the man who sorted out the financial mess that the revolution was causing, accepting the post that we now call the Secretary of the Treasury, bailing out Washington and Congress time after time, rescuing the fledgling American economy from utter collapse and receiving little credit for it a man who was later sent to debtor's prison for three years and died penniless. We'll share the incredible story of Georgia legend Nancy Hart, whom local Indians nicknamed War Woman, a tall, gangly, and wang-leather-tough frontier woman who acted as both a spy and a one-woman demolition team against the British, six of whom made the fatal mistake of ordering her to cook a turkey for them. There was Hercules Mulligan, and his faithful servant, Cato. The same Hercules Mulligan who uncovered a plot to kidnap Washington, thus saving his life. And Sergeant John Champ of Virginia, who was hand-picked by General Washington to kidnap the turncoat Benedict Arnold. A complicated plot, which nearly succeeded. And old man Wyman of Woburn, Massachusetts, the mysterious and deadly figure mounted atop a huge white horse who picked off British soldiers retreating from Concord one by one, striking fear into the hearts of even the bravest of the King's men. And the stories of John Honeyman and Robert Cadwallader, who posed as Tories in New Jersey while providing Washington with vital information he would need for his victories at Trenton and Princeton. There was James Armistead, an enslaved African-American who served the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War under the Marquis de Lafayette, and, as a double agent, was responsible for reporting the activities of Benedict Arnold, as well as Lord Cornwallis, in the weeks leading up to Yorktown. And Major John Clark, whose spying in Philadelphia saved the Continental Army from destruction three times. We'll tell the stories of Margaret Corbin and Mary Ludwig Hayes Macaulay, better known as Molly Pitcher, whose incredible courage Manning their fallen husband's cannons at the battles of Fort Washington and Monmouth, respectively, earned them the admiration of an entire country, as well as Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox of South Carolina, who bested bloody band Tarleton at every turn and perfected guerrilla warfare in the lowland swamps of the Carolinas. In 1912, construction crews working on the Elberton and Eastern Railroad in the Broad River area of Georgia turned up six skeletons, all buried neatly in a row. Upon closer examination, several of the skeletons' necks were broken, indicating that they had been hung and that they had been buried for at least 100 years, possibly longer. When the story started circulating, 
including some published articles in the local papers. It came as no surprise to the locals, who already knew the story, along with all the details, which had been circulating as local legends since the War for Independence. It was one of the many stories that had been told about frontier woman Nancy Morgan Hart, who had come there from the Yadkin River Valley in the early 1770s to settle with her husband, Benjamin Hart, whose descendants, including Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton and Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, would make traction history in generations to come. Nancy Hart was a tall, gangly, red-haired woman with a small pog-scarred face whose skills at hunting and shooting were considered as good or better than most men's and who had a knowledge of wild herbs, which some people, back in those days, associated with witchcraft. But it is doubtful, based on her tough reputation, that anyone had the brass to accuse her of it. One early account said that Hart had no share of beauty, a fact she herself would have readily acknowledged had she ever enjoyed an opportunity of looking into a mirror. Hart was well-connected through family ties to other prominent figures in early American history. She was a cousin to Revolutionary War General Daniel Morgan, who commanded victorious American forces at the Battle of Cowpens in South Carolina on January 17, 1781. Hart was said to have a feisty personal demeanor, characterized by a hot-headed temper, a fearless spirit, and a penchant for exacting vengeance upon those who offended her or harmed her family and friends. Many remembered that she, rather than her husband, ran the Hart household. They had a total of six sons and two daughters. Although she was illiterate, Hart was amply blessed with the skills and knowledge necessary for frontier survival, and she had a passion for placing redcoats in her sights. According to one account, during the Revolution, a group of five or six Tory soldiers came by the Hart house looking either for food or a wig they were pursuing, Whigs being people loyal to the Patriot cause. The soldiers demanded that Hart cook them one of her turkeys, their first and last mistake, and she agreed to feed them. As they entered the cabin, they placed their guns by the door before sitting at her table to eat. As they were drinking and eating, she pushed three of their guns outside through a hole in the wall of the cabin. After the soldiers had been drinking a sufficient time, she grabbed one of the remaining guns and ordered the men to stay still, keeping two or more guns nearby. One of the soldiers ignored her threat, so she shot and killed him. Another made a move toward the weapons, and she killed him as well. She held the remaining Tories captive until her husband and neighbors arrived. According to legend, her husband wanted to shoot the soldiers outright, but she, thinking that might be too kind a solution, demanded that they be hanged, which was accomplished from a nearby tree. Of course, that was just legend. But when those 1912 railroad grading crews working on the Elberton and Eastern Railroad in the area, less than a mile from her old cabin, found the skeletons, four of which had broken necks, that seemed to validate the legend. And there was more. Mrs. Louisa H. Kendall was the niece of John Hart, the son of whom Nancy lived with in later life. Kendall wrote a letter in 1872 recalling some of the stories her uncle had heard from his mother. According to this letter, once, when Nancy was taking a bag of grain to the mill, a band of Tories forced her off her horse and threw the grain to the ground. Undaunted, Hart picked up the heavy bag and walked the rest of the way to the mill. Nancy Hart was also said to have acted as a sniper, killing Tories as they came across the broad river. McIntosh quotes a Mr. Sneed, who was also related to the Harts. He said that one time during the war, Nancy was cooking lye soap in her cabin when her daughter discovered a spy looking through a crack in the wall. 
Hart threw a ladle of boiling soap into the spy's eyes, went outside, tied him up, and turned him over to the local Patriot militia. He probably didn't know how lucky he was. Two separate accounts also say that Nancy dressed as a man in order to enter Tory camps where she could overhear talk and observe the layouts and other elements of military value. It is a fitting tribute to mention that the local Native Americans referred to her as War Woman and named a creek for her. And her fellow Georgians also named a county for her and a town which has served as the county seat, the town of Hartwell and the county of Hart, Georgia. Also, on the approximate site of Hart's Frontier Cabin along River Road in Elbert County, the Daughters of the American Revolution erected a replica cabin in the early 20th century. They used chimney stones recovered from the site of the original cabin, which had stood on the crest of a large hill overlooking Wahatchee Creek. During the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a group of women in LaGrange, Georgia, founded a militia company, which they named the Nancy Hearts, to defend the town from the Union Army. Most of the men of fighting age had been drawn off to war. They learned the use of firearms and drilled regularly throughout the war. Did they ever see action, you ask? In mid-April 1865, Major General James H. Wilson led a Union raid on West Georgia. As the Union troops approached the town of LaGrange from West Point, the few remaining local Confederate cavalrymen were nowhere to be found. And the Nancy Hearts stepped up as an armed regiment to protect the town. They ended up surrendering the town and feeding the Federal troops who destroyed the supplies that the local Confederate forces, upon their return, would need, but left the homes and businesses intact, and left LaGrange with no casualties having been suffered. A rarity for the Civil War. Then there was Hercules Mulligan, who was recruited to spy in New York City by none other than Alexander Hamilton. Born in 1740, Mulligan had taken in Alexander when he arrived in New York City as an orphan in 1773 to attend King's College, which many of you know became Columbia University, and had helped Hamilton get a commission in the Army. Hercules was married to Elizabeth Sanders, the daughter of a Royal Navy Admiral, and he also had a fashionable clothing business near Robert Townsend's Coffee House and Print Shop at the foot of Wall Street, giving him access to officers who would often talk about military matters. Mulligan had begun his spy activities in late 1776, well before the formation of the Culper Ring. And he remained a lone agent, but provided Townsend with information often, making him a sub-agent of the Culper Ring. Mulligan's faithful African-American servant and right-hand man, Cato, often ran courier duty for Mulligan, once delivering a message to Hamilton that the British had hatched a plan to kill or capture Washington and New Jersey Governor William Livingston. Thanks to this information, both were able to avoid the capture. Mulligan was picked up by the British and jailed after Benedict Arnold defected in New York. Arnold having heard a rumor about him while in service to Washington. But six months later, in February of 1781, having no proof, they released Mulligan. During Mulligan's captivity, however, Townsend seized his spy activities, fearing the worst. One would wonder at this point if Mulligan was turned while in prison and you could probably surmise the same thoughts were going through Townsend's mind when his friend came to the door after being released, the spy who came in from the cold. But Mulligan kept providing Townsend with accurate information and gave nothing to the British. Just after his release, he was able to discover that the British were planning to ambush Washington on a supposedly secret mission to meet with Rochambeau, his second major contribution to the cause. 
This let Washington know he had a spy in his camp and caused him to change his path of travel and avoid the ambush. For many of Washington's spies, the prospect of coming in from the cold was not always a simple task. When they returned to their communities after their service, it often took the good word of General Washington to redeem their reputations, the communities believing they had turned loyalist traitors. One example was Sergeant John Champ of Virginia, who had been minding his own business as a member of Light Horse Harry Lee's cavalry troop in New Jersey until September of 1780, when Washington, enraged by Benedict Arnold's defection, conceived a plot to kidnap Benedict Arnold and bring him to justice. He then asked Lee to provide a man who could pull off a very risky mission, and Champ, like Nathan Hale and so many others, volunteered. Champ's mission was to break away from Patriot lines on the west banks of the Hudson River, leap into the water, swim out to a British frigate, and convince the crew that he was a deserter. Chance took the challenge, surviving the shots from his own guards who had not been informed of his fake defection, and making it to the frigate. Then he had to handle the expected interrogation, providing believable enough information, then become a loyalist soldier, establish himself in Manhattan, where Arnold was known to be residing, join Arnold's now-forming inner circle, and find the time to contact Patriot spies within the city without being suspected. A very tall order, to be sure. With the help of his now-fellow agents, Sergeant Champ devised a plan to intercept Arnold during one of his nocturnal strolls at the rear of his garden at Number 3 Broadway, overpower and kidnap him, then carry him back across the Hudson to American lines by boat. Unfortunately, Arnold was shipped out before Champ's mission could be carried out, and Champ, a new recruit on Arnold's legion, was shipped out with them all the way to Virginia, to Portsmouth, where Arnold began preparing a flotilla of ships he would use to terrorize all the communities along the James River, the destination being Richmond, which he would occupy. Champ was now a British soldier, far away from the only two men who could identify him as a true patriot, General Washington and Light Horse Harry Lee. As Arnold's fleet raged up the James River, Champ's worst fear was being captured and killed by his fellow patriots, believing that he was a deserter. Finally, he escaped Arnold's command, somehow made it to Lee's troops, which were now in Carolina, and asked him if he could join the fighting. Lee turned him down, letting him know that if he was captured, he would be hung by the British as a spy, and gave him an honorable discharge, at the same time recommending him back to General Washington for service. When the Continental Congress met, after the war was officially ended by the Treaty of Paris in 1783, on the personal recommendation of General Washington, Sergeant Champ was appointed to the position of doorkeeper or sergeant of arms of the Continental Congress, then meeting at Philadelphia, but obliged, on account of rioting, to remove to Trenton. They were meeting that summer to agree upon the Articles of Confederation, which were to guide the new country until a formal constitution could be put in place. Champ's name appears on the rolls of 25th of August, 1783, as holding that position. Soon afterwards, he returned to Loudoun County, Virginia, married and acquired a small holding near what is now Dover, between the later towns of Aldi and Middleburg, close to the present Little River Turnpike. His actions, unknown and unsung. He was one of many of Washington's faithfuls who went above and beyond the call of duty for his country. Similarly, Irish-born John Honeyman, who, before the Revolution, had been a grenadier in the British Army's 48th Regiment, 
and a favorite of British General Wolfe for his heroism during the Battle of Quebec in 1757, just 20-odd years previously when American colonists and British soldiers fought side-by-side to defeat the French and their Indian allies in the Seven Years' War. Honeyman was one of the three men who carried the fatally injured Wolfe from the battlefield in that campaign. By the time of the Revolution, Honeyman, now in his 50s, became a weaver and settled in the colonies, choosing Griggstown, New Jersey as his home for himself and his wife Mary. When war broke out, Honeyman personally approached Washington, showing him a letter of recommendation from General Wolfe. After a series of meetings during which Washington capably judged Wolfe to be honest in his intentions, Wolfe was assigned spy duties, which would have him pose as a butcher and loyalist, keeping his name, his war record a testament to his British loyalty. Honeyman supplied the Hessians with their beef at Trenton as the Christmas holiday of 1776 approached and got a good look at the defenses at Trenton, taking special note of the dirt highways and their relaxed defenses. And he was quite ready to report to Washington when he was, in quotes, captured and handed to headquarters at Newtown, Pennsylvania. After a lengthy meeting with Washington and Tench Tillman, giving them a full report on both Trenton and Princeton, he was remanded into custody in the stockade. The real intelligence hero of the Princeton victory was a young man named Cadwallander, whose story is coming. That evening, a fire distracted the guards, one of whom had left the door ajar, and Honeyman made his escape, reaching the river in a hail of what was this time purposely misdirected musket fire, taking a small boat across and eventually returning to the Hessian headquarters at Trenton, where he entertained them with stories of his capture and the poor American defenses. He left on Christmas Eve and disappeared into the New Jersey countryside. Two days later, armed with good intelligence, Washington was able to surprise the Hessians at Trenton with one of the greatest victories of the American Revolution, following that up with a huge win at Princeton, both of which had a huge effect upon troop morale, which had been at its lowest ebb during those bleak days after their defeats in the New York campaign. So deeply entrenched was Honeyman as a British loyalist that his friends and neighbors in Griggstown were making life difficult for he and his wife, and they had to fend off angry crowds one time with a letter from Washington testifying to Honeyman's loyalty. When he finally returned from his wartime loyalist travels in 1780, angry, threatening townspeople made their life a hell again until a personal appearance by George Washington finally put the matter to rest. Ever hungry for good intelligence on British positions north of the Delaware, Washington had ordered Militia Colonel John Cadwallader on December 12, 1776 to obtain information on British forces and intentions. I quote, Spare no pains or expense to get intelligence of the enemy's motions and intentions. Every piece of intelligence you obtain worthy of notice, send it forward by express. Cadwallader's intelligence efforts bore fruit in the form of a detailed, handwritten map of the British positions around Princeton, New Jersey. Cadwallader had received this map from a very intelligent young gentleman who had just returned from the area. Cadwallader's map included detailed information on British works, cannon, and force dispositions. The map also included valuable information on the road network around Princeton, all information that Washington put to great use on January 3, 1777. The disastrous defeat suffered by Washington's troops in the 1776 New York campaign and the morally crushing retreat across the Delaware had left the prospects for American independence in tatters. Rather than retreat to winter quarters as most on both sides of the Delaware River expected, 
Washington chose to attack in the dead of winter. Washington's victories at Trenton, the Assunpunk Creek, and at Princeton completely reversed the fortunes of the Continental Army and the prospects for the young United States. Washington's victories and the effective guerrilla war waged in the New Jersey countryside forced Sir William Howe to retract the British lines back towards New York City, giving up much of the Jersey countryside that had been captured earlier. At Trenton, almost 900 Hessians were taken prisoner. 83 were wounded and 22 were killed during what is called the First Battle of Trenton. On the American side, two soldiers died from exposure and five others were wounded, including Lieutenant James Monroe, who would become the first wounded combat veteran to serve as president, and William Washington, General Washington's cousin. Other prominent figures who took part on the American side were future President James Madison, future Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, future Vice President Aaron Burr, and future Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. Many look at the battles of Trenton and Princeton as small affairs, but these battles, combined with the tough winter campaigning, sliced Howe's once mighty army in half. Howe's further request for reinforcement left many in London aghast. How could a broken, starving, ragtag bunch of farm boy colonists be doing this? Washington's bold gambles, often in choosing the right people for the job and effective leadership, had delivered priceless confidence. Not only were the British and the Loyalists discouraged, but his own soldiers found newfound confidence that they could beat the very best that the British could put into the field. There would be wins and losses in the future, but the people were with him now. James Armistead was an enslaved African-American who served the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War under the Marquis de Lafayette, and as a double agent, he was responsible for reporting the activities of Benedict Arnold after his defection, as well as Lord Cornwallis in the weeks leading up to Yorktown. In 1781, James had gained the consent of his master, William Armistead of Virginia, to join the Army of Lafayette, and he did so, his first assignment being to join now Brigadier General Benedict Arnold's army as a runaway slave who knew the back roads and creeks well along the James, and Arnold used him to guide troops through local roads on his raids. Lafayette was anti-slavery and liked this man, believing in his loyalty. Lafayette had chosen well as James Armistead fed both Arnold and later Lord Cornwallis false information while disclosing extremely accurate information to the American side. When Arnold was sent north in the spring of 1781, Armistead took his referral to the camp of Lord Cornwallis and continued his work. Moving frequently between British camps where soldiers and officers would speak freely around him, not considering him a threat. Armistead documented this information in well-written reports which he then delivered to other American spies. His reports were instrumental in helping the American and French forces defeat the British at Yorktown. Major John Clark's agents in and around Philadelphia, while it was under the control of the British, kept busy as farmers, peddlers, and smugglers, traveling freely in and out of the city and providing valuable intelligence from their movements and observations. Major Clark was responsible for operating one of the most notable spy rings organized and run by the Continental Army during the war, one which prevented the destruction of Washington's army at least three different times. Clark's most important assignment occurred during the period September to December 1777, when, despite a serious injury to his shoulder, 
He was asked by Washington to obtain information about General Howe's activities in Philadelphia. He set up a group of informants and couriers and sent 30 detailed reports to Washington that allowed the Continental Army to react to British movements. At one point, he set up an elaborate ruse approaching General Howe and offering to inform on the Americans. Clark's cover as a Quaker loyalist under an assumed name was a good one, and Howe accepted his offer and began paying him to gather information. Then Washington prepared a false report of the Continental Army's strength and planned movements, which Clark delivered to Howe. It worked, but now Clark, fearing for his life, and with his wounds still not healed, and having not seen his wife in over a year, asked Washington to be released. Washington, thankful of his service, agreed and introduced him to Henry Lawrence, who gave him a desk job as auditor of army expenses. He never did release names of informants or couriers, so history is aware of only their sacrifice. And Clark, having done his duty for his new country, sank into respectable obscurity. Major Clark's proverbial ace in the hole, according to an article at CIA.org, was Lydia Dara, acting as a lone agent who had members of her family carry information to Washington. Her social position gave her access to senior British officers, and her elicitation skills resulted in reliable advance notice of British troop movements. An entry in Washington's official expense account dated June 18, 1778, listed $6,170 spent for secret services in Philadelphia. The eight-year-long war for independence was by all means a family affair and many a woman risked her neck in the cause for liberty, not the least of which was Elizabeth Zane of Fort Henry, Virginia. You've probably never heard of Elizabeth Zane or of Fort Henry, Virginia, but the saga of the 60 colonists trapped in that frontier fort for three days while the British and their Indian allies laid siege to it deserves to become a movie. The fort was established in 1774 in what is known today as Wheeling, West Virginia, then called Virginia, and named for Patrick Henry. Fort Henry was situated just off the Ohio River between the southeast border of Ohio and the northwest border of West Virginia. The fort was 356 feet long and 150 feet wide in the shape of a parallelogram. Altogether, it was about three-fourths of an acre, resting on a hillside with Wheeling Creek on the south side of the fort. The fort had a 12-foot wall surrounding it with a wooden tower at each corner. Each tower had portholes for muskets and rifles with strong oak and hickory pickets connecting each of the towers. On top of the barracks was a swivel cannon put in place to give the fort an added advantage against attackers. During attacks, almost all the fighting took place from these towers. Inside the fort were cabins and barracks for sheltering the people living in the area surrounding it. By day they would work their farms, by night raise their families, and on Sundays attend church. They were colonists and patriots, men and women who preferred to be left alone to live their lives without the help or interference of the British government. When Indians threatened, and there had been strings of vicious Indian attacks, kidnappings, and torture in past years, the colonists would sound the alarm and move their families to the protection of the fort as fast as they were able, while the men assembled the local fighting militia. During the American Revolution, the fighting wasn't confined to the clashes between opposing armies it also took place in the back country, as the British and their Indian allies attacked settlement after settlement from New York to the Carolinas and Georgia, in groups of marauders, often led by Tory sympathizers, who saw the revolution 
as an excuse for plundering and pillaging, a civilized way of saying robbing and raping their neighbors who had not pledged their allegiance to King George. Fort Henry had one main entrance with a heavy wooden gate protecting it and one side entrance of similar strength, but much smaller. The fort also had a well inside from a fresh spring just outside the walls. Fort Henry was widely regarded as impregnable as long as the people inside did not run out of supplies. The area surrounding Fort Henry had been cleared, cultivated, and fenced for about one-eighth of a mile, making it even easier to defend against attackers. From September 11th to 13th, 1782, a force of about 300 Wyandotte, Shawnee, Seneca, and Delaware Indians laid siege to Fort Henry, accompanied by a force of 50 British Butler's Rangers. Every man and woman in the fort knew of John Butler and his Rangers, and the massacres they'd committed of colonists in Cherry Valley, New York, and Wyoming Valley in Pennsylvania. In the Wyoming Valley Massacre, they ambushed a militia that had come to the relief of their families, taking 220 scalps and five prisoners who their Indian allies tortured brutally. This group, now threatening Fort Henry, consisted of about 50 loyalists, 20 of them former slaves who had accepted the British offer to earn their freedom and now could kill at will. And the infamous Simon Gertie, known as the White Savage, and a turncoat to the Patriot cause. Of Scots-Irish descent, he was witness to the torture and death of his mother and father by the Senecas and Lenapes, raised by the Indians and used by the British as a translator in the French-Indian Wars. During the Revolution, he threw his loyalty over to the British and was one of the most feared men in the colonies, along with Butler. Gertie had his own force, which met with Butler's rangers on the nearby Sandusky River, and the two forces were placed under the leadership of Captain Pratt. Now they were focused on plundering this fort, with a force of 200 savage Indians bent on scalping, and a force of 60 loyalists to direct the action and take place in the spoils. The siege is commonly known as the last battle of the Revolutionary War, despite subsequent skirmishes involving the loss of life, which took place in New Jersey later in 1782. As the force arrived at Fort Henry, the Zane family, under direction of Colonel David Shepard, was charged with defending the fort. The defending force was made up of 40 men and boys, protecting the 60 women and children from the surrounding area who had come to the fort for protection. Gertie and Pratt approached the fort under a white flag on September 11, 1782, and demanded surrender. But Colonel Shepard refused, knowing that surrender meant death or worse, resolving to fight to the death in order to protect the people within his fort. The settlers were prepared to handle this siege because a similar force of Native Americans and British had attacked the fort before and burned all of the homes and buildings surrounding it to the ground. Between the former siege and this one, the wooden model cannon that previously rested on the barracks had been replaced by a real one. In addition, the homes of the settlers had been rebuilt, including that of Ebenezer Zane. His home, just outside the fort, contained a store of surplus ammunition and arms, and they decided to occupy it in case of another attack. Being notified of the approach of the enemy by John Lynn, a scout, preparations had been made for the expected attack. Those who remained within the Zane house were Andrew Scott, George Green, Elizabeth Zane, Colonel Zane's wife, Molly Scott, Miss McCullough, a sister of Major Samuel McCullough, a slave named Daddy Sam, and his wife, Kate. 
from all the other homes surrounding. The occupants had entered the fort. Although Colonel David Shepard was superior officer in the county, it appears that Colonel Silas Zane was again in command. A force of only 20 men, women, and children occupied the fort. The first siege attempts were entirely aimed at destruction of the fort and surrounding area. The entire first day was wasted in attempting to batter down the gates of the fort and burn down the buildings. When flaming arrows hit the top of the buildings inside the fort, young boys with water buckets would climb up ladders and put out the fires. On the first night, natives attempted to burn down Colonel Zane's fortified cabin, but Daddy Sam saw the native and killed him just before the house was set on fire. The fort's swivel cannon was used heavily in defense of this first attempt, being fired 16 times with such effectiveness that the natives and British attempted to replicate the cannon out of a hollowed-out tree wrapped in chains. When they attempted firing their makeshift cannon, it exploded, killing and injuring the natives standing around. As the men defended against attacks the first day, the women in the fort had been pouring hot lead into bullet molds and dipping them into water to cool them. These were fighting women. Elizabeth Zane occupied one of the sentry boxes at the corner of the fort with her brother Jonathan and a colonist named Salter, both of whom were crack shots, and she was loading their guns for them, the barrels of which were scalding hot from the continuous action. The slits through which the men were firing were the target of the loyalist marksmen as well, and Elizabeth had been wounded, although slightly, from splinters that the incoming bullets were sending out like small shrapnel. The second siege on the following day was when the settlers ran into trouble. Their supply of gunpowder was running low, and they would not be able to defend the fort much longer if they lost use of the cannon and their rifles. Young Elizabeth Betty Zane remembered the store of powder in her brother's cabin and volunteered to retrieve it. She was immediately challenged, but she said she had three good reasons for being the smartest choice. First, the enemy would be less inclined to shoot a woman, and with only 20 men of fighting age, they couldn't spare any of them. Second, she knew exactly where the store was kept in the cabin. Third, she was young and strong enough to carry the store of powder from the cabin back to the fort. What Betty Zane did not tell them was that she had gone 40 hours without sleep as she was molding bullets for the men defending Fort Henry. At about 12 o'clock noon on the second day of the siege, Betty Zane opened the front gate of Fort Henry and began walking the 60 yards to Ebenezer Zane's cabin outside the fort. Some Indians started screaming in derision, a squaw! The shouts and screams of fighting stopped, along with the sound of musket and rifle fire, the moment she walked out of the fort. The guards on the upper walls, including those operating the swivel cannon, held their fire too, keeping their targets in sight. The native and British force stared in awe as she disappeared into the cabin. In a few minutes, she left the cabin, a tablecloth wrapped around her waist, its contents, all the gunpowder from a keg that she had emptied into it, thus leaving her arms free to assist her balance as she ran. After only a few cautious steps, the attackers, realizing that she was bringing powder to the fort, opened fire on her, and she broke into a run. Ten yards, twenty, thirty, forty, 
until about 15 yards from the gate, and then she tripped and fell, but quickly recovered, still managing to cling to her apron and its precious contents. You can only imagine what the men and women watching from the cabin, including her mother, and at the gate, and on the sentry stations, must have been feeling during those anxious moments. Then, with a final burst, she rose from the ground and ran to the opening gate. With that final burst after rising from the ground, she ran to the opening gate, slipping inside as arrows and bullets slammed into the door through which she had just entered. The powder, delivered by a young lady with incredible courage, allowed the settlers to defend the fort successfully until help arrived, which he did on the morning of the third day of the siege. The native and British force left, followed soon after by Captain Broad and 70 soldiers who had been sent in relief. Terrifying Indian raids throughout the 1700s in Pennsylvania and upstate New York created a lot of orphans, and Margaret Cochran Corbin was one of them. Born in western Pennsylvania on November 12, 1751, in what is now Franklin County, an orphan at age five when Indians attacked their home, killing her father and carrying off her mother, never to be seen again. She and her brother John were raised by an uncle and were no strangers to hardship surviving on what was then the American frontier. In 1772, at age 21, she married John Corbin, who joined the Pennsylvania militia three years later. Instead of staying home, Corbin left with her husband for war, becoming, like many other women, a camp follower who earned money cooking and doing laundry for soldiers. She also helped take care of the sick and wounded. As a nurse, she was allowed to accompany her husband into battle, and there, dressed as a man, she learned how to load and fire her husband's cannon. On November 16th, 1776, Washington pulled his major force out of Manhattan and moved them to White Plains, leaving 600 of his troops positioned on a bluff at Fort Washington in northern Manhattan, New York. And these remaining troops came under attack by 4,000 Hessian troops under British command, and a fierce battle ensued. John Corbin, with Margaret by his side, was put in charge of one of the two cannons positioned at the top of that bluff, that position now called Fort Tryon Park. In the thick of the battle, when her husband was struck and fell dead, Margaret continued to load and fire with outstanding accuracy, as surviving soldiers later noted. Eventually, however, she too was hit by the enemy fire, which nearly severed her left arm and severely wounded her jaw and chest. She was captured at the surrender of Fort Washington and later released by the British as an invalid. She was unable to use her left arm for the rest of her life, the British eventually won this battle, with Corbin numbered among the prisoners of war who were paroled and released back to the care of revolutionary hospitals. Left to support herself alone, Corbin struggled financially. After she recovered, Corbin joined the Invalid Regiment at West Point, where she aided the wounded until she was formally discharged in 1783. Then, on July 6, 1779, the Continental Congress, in recognition of her brave service, awarded her with a lifelong pension, the first military pension ever given to a woman. In 1782, 
Corbin married a wounded soldier, but he died a year later. Gruff and unfeminine, Corbin made few friends among the women of her time, instead feeling more at home smoking and conversing with other soldiers. Corbin died near West Point before reaching her 50th birthday. In 1926, her remains were removed from an obscure grave along the Hudson River to West Point, where she was buried with full military honors. A plaque at Fort Tryon Park in Manhattan hails her as the first woman to take a soldier's part in the War for Liberty. And there were women who fought in the Revolution, wearing men's uniforms and signing up under assumed names. One such soldier from Massachusetts being Robert Shirtliff, who was actually five foot nine, Deborah Sampson from Plimpton, Massachusetts, who signed up with the Massachusetts 4th Regiment. Sampson fought in several skirmishes. During her first battle on July 3, 1782, outside Terrytown, New York, she took two musket balls in her thigh and a cut on her forehead. She begged her fellow soldiers to let her die and not take her to a doctor, but a soldier put her on his horse and took her to a hospital. The doctors treated her head wound, but she left the hospital before they could attend to her leg, fearful that her identity would be discovered. She removed one of the balls herself with a penknife and sewing needle, but the other one was too deep for her to reach, and as a result, her leg never fully healed. On April 1, 1783, she was reassigned to new duties and spent seven months serving as a waiter to General John Patterson. And if you're ever driving up the New Jersey Turnpike and stop for gas at the Molly Pitcher rest area between exits 8 and 8A, take notice that Molly Pitcher was the nickname given by the soldiers to Molly Ludwig Hayes, who stepped into the history books during the Battle of Monmouth, New Jersey, in June of 1778. The Battle of Monmouth was fought under brutal heat, with men and horses dropping and dying from heat exhaustion just as fast as from bullets and cannon fire. Molly was a camp follower and stayed close to her husband, John. But in this battle, she was kept busy carrying bucket loads of water to all the soldiers on the front line, which they used to drink, to pour over their heads, and to dip their burning hot rifle barrels in. She also stayed busy tending to the wounded. In one instance, carrying a wounded soldier to the rear on her back, when John, manning the cannons, was felled by rifle fire, she, like Margaret Corbin, kept his cannon in action until the battle ended, this time in a huge victory for the Americans. She and her husband survived the war, although he died two years later. In 1822, the Pennsylvania legislature granted her a $40 a month annuity. This patriot was short, frail, and walked with a limp, but as a guerrilla fighter and leader of men, he was a giant. Along the backwaters and swamps of South Carolina, his name, Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, is still spoken of whenever men gather to tell the old stories. To understand how much he meant to the rebels fighting in the Carolinas, we need to set the stage for what was happening in the days after the fall of Charleston. In the days of America's War for Independence, South Carolina's city of Charleston, a major port for the southern colonies, was a major target for the British as well who sent Lord Cornwallis and 8,000 troops to capture it, subdue the rebellion in the Carolinas, and then move northward where they could close the trap on Virginia. Cornwallis got his victories with the surrender of Charleston, where the Americans under the command of Benjamin Lincoln surrendered 5,000 soldiers, 
a crippling loss for the Continental Army. With that victory, Cornwallis put out an edict declaring that all citizens and soldiers either pledge allegiance to the king or sign a parole pledging not to take up arms until the end of the war, an order that his superior, General Clinton, quickly countermanded, demanding that all the colonists sign an allegiance to the British cause, no exceptions. Clinton then loaded up most of Cornwallis's experienced cavalry, along with 3,000 of his troops, and headed for New York, leaving Cornwallis with 5,000 troops and a very angry populace. At that point, Cornwallis turned to his most trusted officer, Colonel Bannister Tarleton, and told him to get busy subduing the rebels. Meanwhile, George Washington, barely hanging on after the defeat of Fort Washington, sent General Horatio Gates, the self-proclaimed hero of Saratoga, who in fact wasn't the hero of that victory by a long shot, the same Horatio Gates who had been sending critical letters regarding Washington's command abilities to Congress, to South Carolina with 2,000 fresh troops, which by the time they arrived, arrived looking like they'd been dragged behind horses. Gates gathered his men for a fight and promptly found one in Camden, South Carolina, where he lost most of his troops in a disastrous battle in which he'd been outsmarted and outgeneraled at every turn, and from which he had run, abandoning his men and riding at top speed for three days to Hillsboro, North Carolina, where he no doubt paused to think how he could concoct a story to excuse his actions. But the patriots from the backwoods and swamps of the Carolinas and Georgia hadn't been beaten, and they went after Ferguson's regiment at Kings Mountain and handed them a disastrous defeat, while small bands of patriots fought hit-and-run warfare against the British forces. By January of 1781, every British supply line, station, garrison, or unguarded troop position was coming under musket fire, the attackers melting into the woods and swamp before any resistance could be mounted. Cornwallis had responded by sending Colonel Tarleton after the rebels, and he caught up with a large group at the Waxels, which surrendered, putting their hands in the air. But Tarleton shouted, no quarter, and the British and their Tory troops began a wholesale butchering of the unarmed men, killing hundreds. Bodies were later found bayoneted 20 times, often headless, and when word got around, the Patriots reacted in kind, offering no quarter to any British soldiers or Tories in battle. At that point, Washington made one of his best decisions of the war, sending General Greene to relieve Gage. And when General Greene arrived, morale among the scattered rebel troops increased tenfold, especially when legendary rifleman Dan Morgan came back out of retirement to fight for the cause, having earned his reputation in the French-Indian Wars. Things were now looking bad for Cornwallis. With Tarleton's constant depredations and the constant bleeding of troops and supplies caused by rebel raids, the British hold on the southern front was falling apart fast, and more backwoodsmen were showing up to fight for the cause every day. Francis Marion first learned his Indian style of warfare while fighting the Cherokees in the southern theater of the French and Indian War. And the Cherokees were no pushovers. With American independence in 1776, Marion was commissioned a major in the South Carolina militia. He helped to repulse the British bombardment of Charleston in 1776, commanding a battery of cannon that crippled the British fleet and sent it running off the next morning, like earless dogs, in quotes. But the American triumph was short-lived. After the surrender of Charleston 
and without an army or base of operations, Colonel Marion collected a ragged band of followers and slipped into the swamps, hiding in the lowlands of British-occupied South Carolina. During the next two and a half years, Marion engaged in the devastating guerrilla warfare that earned him the title of Swamp Fox. Although virtually in a sea of enemies, Marion and militia leaders Thomas Sumter and Andrew Pickens kept resistance alive in South Carolina until General Greene had arrived and the Continental Army could recapture the region. Since over half of the South Carolina backcountry was Loyalist, or Tory, Marion engaged as much in civil war as he did war against the British. The Swamp Fox and his mounted raiders hid and camped in the woods and swamps of the backcountry, foraging for food and supplies, and when the opportunity arose, striking at the British and Tory forces with ferocity. Their chief weapon was surprise, an ambush was their specialty. They attacked swiftly and then vanished into the swamps before reinforcements could arrive. British officers soon became obsessed with capturing the Swamp Fox and his men. Our army will be destroyed by these damned driblets, one British general raged. Marion actively gathered intelligence and disrupted the Redcoat's supply and communications lines. Yet the British seemed powerless to stop him. As his name and reputation spread, scores of volunteers rode into the lowlands to join his band. The once strong loyalist militia refused to fight him. And as Colonel Marion observed, the Tories are so affrighted with my little excursions that many are moving off to Georgia with their effects. Others are run into the swamps. Ironically, the Swamp Fox and the other South Carolina guerrillas eventually worked themselves out of a job. The Continental Army returned, and Colonel Francis Marion, much to his dismay, found himself back in the regular army. Marion despised the rules and politics of professional soldiering and found himself constantly at odds with his commanding officers. When the British surrendered in Charleston, 1783, he returned to civilian life, though retaining the commission of Brigadier General in the South Carolina militia. Nevertheless, Francis Marion can definitely share some of the credit for American independence. Due to Marion's and others' guerrilla bands, the British could never secure South Carolina permanently. Their entire southern offensive was stymied. Indeed, factoring in the North Carolina militia's subsequent victory at Kings Mountain in 1780, historians have rightly credited the Southern militia with expediting the American victory in the Revolutionary War. It was setbacks in Carolina, after all, that propelled Lord Cornwallis to his rash decision to leave the Carolinas and attack Virginia instead, a decision that landed him and 8,000 troops on the Yorktown Peninsula in 1781, right where Washington wanted him. The Swamp Fox's last years were spent rebuilding his war-torn plantation and serving in the South Carolina State Senate. Marion finally married at age 56 and led the life of a country gentleman. When he died in 1795, the little colonel with a limp had the respect and admiration of the nation whose independence he had fought so hard to secure. The last of our unsung heroes is Tim Murphy, born in the Delaware Gap region of Pennsylvania, then raised in Pennsylvania's Wyoming Valley where he grew up fast, learning how to shoot accurately to feed his family and defend them against marauding Indians. He served with the Americans besieging Boston in 1775 and was present for all the key battles of Long Island, Trenton, and Princeton, plus Washington's campaign of 1777, until joining Daniel Morgan's rifles at Saratoga, where his shots from 200 yards felled British General Fraser, whose loss proved to be a key factor in the win at Saratoga. The win 
that brought the French into the war on the side of the colonists. After Saratoga, he rejoined Washington at Valley Forge, and during the brutal winter that tested the mettle of the Patriot cause to its fullest. Next June came the Battle of Monmouth, where Murphy and three companions captured a British general's coach, gaining valuable intelligence for the battle, which was the battle that employed all of Baron von Steuben's training and tactics learned at Valley Forge, and saw the Continental Army going toe-to-toe with the most powerful army on earth. Then Murphy joined Sullivan's forces in New York and Pennsylvania as they battled Indians and Tories. Later that year, Murphy was at Middle Fort in Schoharie, when it came under siege by Sir John Johnson, the Tory king of the Albany settlements who had amassed a Mohawk Indian empire that included a castle and direct hundreds of raids against Dutch settlements and colonists who supported the Patriot cause. Johnson had brought with him a force of nearly 2,000 Indians, Tories, British soldiers, and British soldiers, while inside the fort, Major Woolsey commanded a force of about 400 soldiers and militiamen. Murphy, by this time, had become a living legend. When Johnson's white flag carrying aid approached the fort walls and demanded a surrender, Murphy and companion David Ellerson fired warning shots, stopping him in his tracks. Woolsey ordered his men to arrest Murphy for insubordination, but not a man stepped forward. Murphy well knew what would happen if Woolsey surrendered the fort. They would all be slaughtered. More attacks were made with light cannon, and two more times Johnson sent his aides to demand surrender, with Murphy continuing to shoot near them. Woolsey became furious at Murphy, threatening to kill him if he didn't surrender his post, to which Murphy replied, Sooner than see that flag enter this fort, I'll send a bullet through your heart. As events transpired during the hours following that exchange, Woolsey, seeing that his men would not follow his command, stepped down from command, The fort held, and Johnson moved on. To add a final note to his revolutionary service, Murphy was present for the siege at Yorktown, where a trapped Cornwallis finally surrendered his troops. And not having enough, Murphy then returned to New York to fight Indians until the war officially ended in 1783. When he was governor of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt spoke of Timothy Murphy when the state of New York erected a memorial to him at the Saratoga National Battlefield in 1929. The future President of the United States stated, This country has been made by Timothy Murphy's, the men in the ranks. Conditions here called for the qualities of the heart and head that Tim Murphy had in abundance. Our histories should tell us more of the men in the ranks, for it was them, more than to the generals, that we were indebted for our military victories. And we add this footnote to our episode, which I think you'll enjoy. In 1824, during an emotional return to the now United States of America, 40 years after the War for Independence, the Marquis de Lafayette returned at the invitation of now President James Monroe, who many of you remember had been one of the young officers in Washington's command in the Battle of Trenton. Lafayette made a tour of all 24 states. The rest were to come later during which time he was met by huge, adoring crowds and hailed as a hero wherever he went. People would line the road on both sides to cheer, some crying at the sight of one of the men of the American Revolution who had fought so hard for the cause of liberty. While in Virginia, where he visited Washington's grave and gave a speech to the House of Delegates, Lafayette's carriage, 
was proceeding through a crowd of waving and cheering onlookers when he spotted a man he had known and worked with back in the days in the fight for American independence. The man was standing quietly amongst the others in the crowd who were cheering and waving their arms. In a scene fit for a movie, Lafayette ordered the driver to stop, climbed out of the carriage, and rushed through the lines of onlookers toward the tall black man with now graying hair standing at the back who had come to watch Lafayette's procession. With great emotion, Lafayette hugged him. Tears rolled down both their faces as they were overcome with emotion, remembering their friendship so many years ago amidst the trials and spectacle of war. That man was none other than James Armistead, the spy who had provided Lafayette and Washington with critical information from inside the camps of Benedict Arnold and Cornwallis. Lafayette stayed in the area long enough to write a personal letter of recommendation for Armistead that reads this way. This is to certify that the bearer by the name of James has done essential services to me while I had the honor to command in this state. His intelligences from the enemy's camp were industriously collected and faithfully delivered. He perfectly acquitted himself with some important commissions and appears to me entitled to every reward his situation can admit of. Done under my hand, Richmond, November 21st, 1784. Lafayette. This commendation earned James Armistead's freedom just a few years later, at which time he officially added a new last name. Armistead continued to live as a free man in Kent County, Virginia, with his new wife, one son, and several other children, becoming a wealthy farmer, and at one point, surprisingly, owning three slaves. He received a pension for his services in the war and died in Baltimore in 1830 his tombstone now bearing the name James Armistead Lafayette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We've been enjoying your reviews at Apple iTunes Podcast app and here are a few we'd like to share. I'm leaving a link to the Apple iTunes free app in the show notes. The first one is from Rick just one week ago, five stars. I always look forward to new episodes. Thanks for all that you do. And this one titled 1001 Eros. Production and research top-notch. Interesting stories and great narration. And this from New Mexico Gal, five stars. Great series of podcasts. And Tony says five stars. Enthusiastic host and interesting stories. Check it out. We can't thank all of you enough for taking a little extra time to write these kind words. And to all of you for listening, for being fans of the show, thank you. You can find 1001 Heroes and our sister show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, wherever great podcasts are found. At the free Apple iTunes app, at Stitcher.com, at Podbay.fm, at iHeartRadio and Google Play, and at our home website at 1001storiespodcast.com. This month, we're asking if you'll please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and give us a page like there and stop by Twitter at 1001podcast and give us a like and a retweet. We are trying to grow our audience and everything helps. Ever wonder how big our audience has gotten? These past 12 months have been terrific. We've received over 3.5 million listens, mostly in the U.S., but also in the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, Japan, China, 
Russia, Iceland, India, Vietnam, Mumbai, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, Norway, Sweden, and the list goes on. Thank you all. Someday we'll have to have a big 1001 reunion, maybe a bake sale to raise money for a world charity. Send me ideas at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.